hello there. I'm Ellen. I'm the pussycat half of Pea Green Boat. In this podcast, I'll be talking about the real you, the person you've always dreamed of being. And I'll also be talking about all the things that get in the way of you being that person, that stop you being that person, and what we might be able to do to change that. I'll often be chatting with my fellow coach and longtime friend Fiona Dove. Fiona is the other half of Pea Green Boat. And with lots of other fascinating people from all over the world that we've both been fortunate to meet. So join me here for our weekly chats, full of laughter and ideas, ideas that can open doors for you. So grab yourself a coffee, hop on board Pea Green Boat, and we'll have a gentle sail down the river. Hello. This time, I'm talking about what they call Jung's Collective Unconscious. Hmm, long words. Yeah. Collective, okay, all together, everybody, everything we can think of. Unconscious, what we're not conscious of, really. I mean, that's the basic line of it. Jung was really fundamental in sorting us out, or at least beginning to sort this out for us. He gave us some massive pointers which are really, really important. If you know anything about Carl Jung, he's a fascinating person. He actually began psychology through seances with his cousin and he had a familiar spirit. But when he started really working, he worked with Freud. Brilliant man, Freud. And for a long time they worked together. They shared experience and Freud taught him a lot. But then came a point, and this is the point, where they decided to split. Well, they fell out, really. Probably Jung didn't fall out quite as badly as Freud was falling out with him, but they certainly fell out, and I think both of them were capable of being cross. And it came through Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Freud believed that personal experience is what develops us into who we are. But for Jung, this was much too limiting. He believed that personal experience exists to develop what is already within us, that we have personal experience in order to develop stuff that we're unconscious of, but that's already there. I'm wholly of Jung's opinion. I think that our experience is what we use to build on bedrock, ground roots. It's what we develop ourselves through and from. And we develop ourselves so we can fulfill our full potential. And the concept of collective unconscious is one of Jung's most important ideas because he was really the first one to go for this. Really the first one to say, this is what it is. This is what's actually happening. It's one of the fundamental bases for my coaching style. And it really comes from when I first learned about it, which is over 30 years ago in my psychology training. And I suddenly went, wow, that is actually talking about what my own people, my family experience, the magic stuff that we do, what my people called the ancestors. And so it is. Now, 
before I get into that, Jung's ideas of the collective unconscious are now both very acceptable and highly useful and very much used in many different kinds of scientific thought. However, often when people use them and they clothe them in their own dress, as I'm going to here now today, very few people actually attribute the concept to Jung. I wonder sometimes actually how many people know that he, he developed it, that the concept actually comes from him. Maybe they don't. So, okay, what is it? What is this collective unconscious? Now, Jung says, his concept suggests, let's stay in the scientific language mode, that there's a layer of our mind that is largely unconscious to us. And I expect most of us would probably believe that. We can touch it sometimes and we can draw on it, but we need to learn how to do that. And it's a layer of our unconscious mind that we're born with. It isn't something that comes after we're born. We're actually born with this. And that layer, that part of our mind, that part of our consciousness, which is unconscious. Wow, we're getting a bit twisted here. That part is what connects each of us to the whole history of all human thoughts and all human behaviours. And that was what Jung said. But my own experience suggests that it goes much further than that. That it also connects us to the consciousness of everything. And scientific discoveries over the past 50 years show this is so too. And so do apparently the archaeological things that we can see as well. But certainly the science does. I'm thinking again in particular now, well, you know, I'm a gardener and into trees and all that stuff. But I'm thinking of Walburn's book, The Hidden Life of Trees. And there's so much in there that actually shows how trees connect. And they connect across the years, across generations, and seemingly bring things forward, bring tree knowing. Hang in there. Remember, Hollywood rules. Let your disbelief be suspended. Anything's possible. So, okay, tree connections can actually delve deep into the underneath layer of tree consciousness and bring things up that are useful to the trees, that trees can remember. And the one that I love best, the trees can actually count. So, that's just one little example that we're finding where the only way you can explain what actually happens is that there is an unconsciousness, there is a collective unconscious that we can all touch and that that goes back as far as time, that we can actually touch it and that it, it affects what we do and it helps us to do things, or it can do. And I'm saying too that we can learn to touch into this. And I'm certainly not the only person saying that. Nowadays, we're told all the time, and I totally agree with it, that we need to connect or reconnect to nature. It's pointed up everywhere. And it really is a vital thing for us all to do if we're to succeed in changing how we live so that we can work with, and maybe even slow down, climate change. And thinking again, 
If we can put ourselves back, in as far as you can, back into the mindset of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, we begin to realise just how necessary that unconscious pool of knowledge and wisdom was to us in our past. We would need to know all this old stuff that our ancestors knew if we were going to hunt and forage successfully. We need to know it in our bones. And that means being able to touch into this pool that for many people is apparently out of touch that we can't actually reach into. Quick aside here. Hopefully, you don't have the concept that our ancestors were all ug ug stupid savages. Hopefully that died out in the mid-20th century. And it's certainly well on its way into the compost heap now. When you actually delve into archaeology, you can see that in so many ways, our ancient ancestors, and I mean our Paleolithic, pre-Neolithic, pre-even Mesolithic, so pre the Stone Age, with the the later Stone Age, and pre-farming, you can see how those ancestors had, in many ways, a much better and certainly far less stressful lifestyles than we do now. It certainly wasn't the survival regime that historians and archaeologists used to tell us that they lived. Poor souls scrabbling for the last item of food or the last blade of whatever it was they were going to eat or leaf. That life wasn't that hard. They didn't scrape an existence. For instance, we found some things like they actually lived much longer than our later ancestors did until recently, very recently, like the 20th century. There are 80-year-old prehistoric Paleolithic ancestors. They didn't all die off at 25, 30, and old man at 40. Mind you, that did happen, I must admit, after farming. <laughs> Unfortunately, we lost a lot of the skills and knowing and wisdom that we had in the Paleolithic. And we put ourselves into positions where arthritis began, cancers began, diabetes began. They began with farming. Very, very, very rarely do you find those genes, those cells in Paleolithic humans. Oops, my feeling. Think we might have made a bit of a wrong turn somewhere there. Anyway, we're not there today. But our Paleolithic ancestors were super. They were fantastic. They were very intelligent. They developed massive skills, skills that they needed, that they wanted at the time. Their brains were actually quite as large as ours. And in actual fact, despite 20th century mythology, the Neanderthal brain is actually a bit larger than ours. So, you know, be careful when you think of savage ancestors. They weren't. And beautiful little example, which I've seen, you have to usually ask for it. It's rarely out, unfortunately. But there's a beautiful example in the British Museum. And it's a piece of carvery, a piece of beautiful made thing that is called the swimming reindeer and it's two reindeers swimming together actually when you really look at them 
and go into detail, you find that the front one is actually female because they've even got spots showing the female in mating coat on her and the male is probably male. So maybe they're doing a bit more than swimming. Mm. Anyway, we'll leave that. They're called the Swimming Reindeer. And you can see pictures of them if you Google Swimming Reindeer British Museum. How beautiful they are. Now that was carved from a mammoth tusk, which is pretty tough to carve. And it was carved some 13,000 years ago. That's the Magdalenian period in what is now France. They had the time to learn and perfect these wonderful skills. And they had the time to do it. They had the time to actually sit there and carve it. And that person was probably the carver in the family, in the little tribe, the group of people who lived together. And there would likely have been other people who were the hunters and the foragers. And these things weren't, as we learned way back in actually 1960, these things weren't gender-based. They were actually what you enjoyed doing and what you were really good at. And there wasn't a hierarchy, you know, a hunter wasn't more important than a forager. Both were important. The carver was important. All of them were important. So we possibly might need to look back into our ancient ancestors for a few tips on how to de-stress our lives now and actually live better lives, more fun lives, more successful lives. Anyway, back to the collective unconscious. Jung got the idea of the collective after a dream. He dreamed he was in a house with a first floor that was well decorated and organised and he thought that must be the conscious personality. And then there was a ground floor below it and that was sort of more medieval and dark, like the personal unconscious. And below that again was the basement. And in the basement he was seeing what to him were signs of primitive culture and ancient skills. And he called that the collective unconscious. So you should live in your first floor, you're nicely decorated, well organised for your personality, the place where you normally live. And below that was your personal unconscious, your personal memories, your personal belief systems, thoughts, the way you were brought up, habits, all those things. And then right below that, was all the stuff that, you know, grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandmother and all these people had left in the basement. And so this collective unconsciousness is very like that.
I love that idea. And it quite fascinates me because there are so many traditional stories from all over the world that actually speak of ancestral records. Most people have heard the word karma. That's about ancestral records. But with it's not just in the Indian traditions that this exists. We've got our own tradition here in Britain of the ancestors. And so they have in the American native peoples, both south and north, and in the Russian and the Asian native peoples and the Australians and the Africans, everywhere, everywhere there is the collective unconscious called by whatever name you want to call it. One of the names in Britain is the lower world, the world of the ancestors, the world of ancient wisdom and ancient knowledge and everything that's ever happened. In fact, that's what we call it. The lower world is the place of everything that was. So that is like Jung's unconscious again, which is again the place of everything that ever has been, ever was. And we can touch into it. So, so it's a worldwide concept. And Jung enjoyed all the ideas of ancient traditions from around the world too. And no and by no means did he and no way did Jung disparage them, but he worked with them. And he developed his own concepts partly through them. We all take in information, we all take in wisdom and knowledge that we hear and read and see and feel from other people. And that all changes. This is the experience of the now, the experience of here today, the experience that helps us grow and change. But it's built on all this stuff in the past. And we can actually reach back into that. I've been teaching people how to do that for ages, both as part of coaching skills, which they actually quite enjoy, and they suddenly realize they've got this extra thing that will help them, you know, when they're working with their staff, with their colleagues, with the boss even. And it can actually help them because they can pull in some wisdom that somebody else hasn't actually known, seen, felt, thought of. We don't all know everything. And even if, you know, like you're the CEO of a company or something, that doesn't mean to say you're omniscient or omnipotent. It just means to say, hopefully anyway, to say that you're good at looking after com the company and the people. So your staff can tell you things and have, have their wisdom bring out their wisdom. And if we all knew how to touch into this ancient wisdom, we'd all have a lot more of it. We'd be able to work a darn sight better. So this idea of a vast field of knowledge and wisdom really does go back to ancient times. And as I said, we can all ask. And as I said, we can all access it. And we can learn how to do that, so we do it when we need. And this vast pool of wisdom and knowledge helps us understand our experiences. We can feel them as part of the, common, the commonality to all humanity. 
And that's really necessary to sanity, actually. If we all feel we're part of the same thing, it helps us to feel much more conscious with it, sane, grounded, together. And it helps us to connect, to connect to each other. And not only just ourselves. It does actually help this connect with nature, this feeling that you are part of the land that grows trees and vegetables and has rocks and foxes and birds in it as well, and that they're not foreign in the sense of dangerous foreign and bad and hard to you. They're good. They're like you. They're just different. And so it helps us to learn that difference isn't bad. It isn't something to be feared. It's part of nature, part of how things really are. And it also helps us, this great pool of wisdom, in the connecting to all other human beings, that helps us dissolve the stranger feeling. So our problems with race and gender and colour and height and weight and all the rest of the troubles that we have, which we've largely imposed upon ourselves by saying, he's all right. He's not all right. Anyway, these stranger feelings, it helps to dissolve them when we realize that we all delve into the same pool and that we can all feel into all the same knowledge, same wisdom from way back. And that helps another thing too, because there are actually quite a lot of people who do feel into this. They just don't talk about it. I was with a a woman yesterday, lovely woman, becoming a friend, fellow gardener, and the talk got around to all this kind of thing again. And she senses things. She knows when something's going to happen, even like when your driving license is going to turn up. Oh, it'll come today. And she's right. She senses when much bigger things happen, particularly with her family, for instance, or her dear friends. She senses what's going on with her animals. She's got two lovely dogs. And she senses what's actually happening in the garden. And she adjusts how she gardens to what her inner feelings tell her. Now, that's part of being in touch with the collective unconscious. This is much deeper than her personal unconscious. This is much deeper. I mean, trees aren't... Tree consciousness is not... In her personal consciousness, it's or unconsciousness rather, it's deep down in the everybody's unconscious, everybody's collective, everything's collective. So a lot of people who do it, but because people are too often afraid, oh, you're just, you know, you've got voices in your head, you're nuts, that kind of thing. Because of that, people tend not to talk about it. I think it's high time we started talking about it and started saying, yeah, I do feel that. Yeah, I do get that feeling. And I do know about those things. And I can tell when it's going to rain. And I do know when the postman is going to deliver my driving license. Open the world up enormously if we did that. Help connection with everybody. Now, those people very often, they won't talk about it for one of the things that we have as a little catchphrase, which, okay, it's a label, it works. And that's the imposter syndrome. 
And there are times, actually, when just about everybody's felt an imposter. <laughs> I can't really do that. You know, I was told at school that I was useless at drawing. And so these sort of squiggles that I'm doing now, they're, they're horrible. And somebody who hasn't heard all this history from you sort of goes, oh, wow, I really like that drawing. Can I have it? And the person sits there going, um, 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 does not compute, scared, worried. And they feel an impossible, oh, I can't really draw. You know, we've all heard it. We've all got our own things that we say it about. But when we feel that we can actually touch back into the past and reach to places, people, things, I'll talk about them in a minute in a different way, these things from the past, we can actually bring them forward and they help us. They help our experience. They help us learn. They help us know how to be and how to do. And as I said earlier, the evidence is there in the old stories that we've had this as long as they've been human beings. We've just decided to forget it in the relatively very recent past. And some of that past is actually only two or three hundred years old, not even thousands. We'll talk about all that another day. So, Jung and his collective, and Jung called the contents of the collective archetypes. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the word archetype. Now, just hang on a minute while I do this thing. Archetypes. That's a long three-syllable word, not horrendously, but it's sort of like not what I use in everyday life. So it's like I'm not sure I have the concept on there. Actually, what Jung was meaning was that archetypes are universal concepts, they're universal ideas that we all seem to know instinctively. So you've got this long word, absolutely fine. He was a scientist, he used long words. Other people use long words too, but still. He was using this word, and it just means the universal concepts that we're born with, that we have instinctively. His description was identical psychic, that means non-physical really, identical psychic structures common to all. So we've all got these things within us that are common to us all. And archetypes are like blueprints, they're like plans, models. They're things that we could use to start with, like if you're trying to build a house or knit a jumper or even make a cake, you've got like a recipe. And they're almost like recipes for how people have done things in the past. Now, there you are, you're trying to make your Victoria sandwich or whatever it is, but actually you don't want any sugar in it. So you use honey, say, and you beat up your butter with honey. So you've actually changed the original archetype slightly to suit you. And you don't actually want any salt in with your braised beef. So you don't. So you've changed the original concept. That's absolutely fine. We all do it. 
And it's what concepts are for, it's what recipes are for, it's what knitting patterns are for, it's even what house patterns are for. You think, oh, actually, I don't like it, that wall there, and I want that window bigger. But they're a starter for 10, if you like. They're a basis for us to get going with, a basic idea. As an author, one of the worst things you can do is sit there looking at a blank page. Even if you write a load of drivel like Mary Had a Little Lamb or something on it, it starts you off. And they're like starters. They're like things that get you going in the way that you want to be. And another thing that archetypes do, and I think it's really quite useful, is they help us to understand that we're not just little islands floating around, tillerless, no direction, in a directionless ocean. We're actually connected points of individuality. And we can all work together. Archetypes can show us that it's true. We can have the same thoughts and ideas as another person. Even if we've never met them, even though they come from an entirely different culture and background, and they show that we're delving down, we're going into this deep pool, and we're actually able to pull up the same ideas. And this has happened in sort of big scientific thoughts. I live near Shrewsbury, and Shrewsbury was where Darwin was born and grew up and all that sort of thing. Now, Darwin had his ideas, but so did two or three other blokes at the same time. It's just Darwin got in first, so he's the one we all remember. And they didn't know each other. They did later. They did as they were sort of starting to fight over, you know, who got the kudos for thinking this up first. But they didn't know each other to start with. But they all came up with the same idea. So this idea comes from much deeper than just Darwin's brain. And this whole idea that we can be the same, we can have the same thoughts and feelings and ideas as somebody else completely different from us, from another country and another culture, another gender, all things different to us. That's so useful right now. Gods only know we need it. We've got enough difference problems. We need to lose them. And the unconscious can be a way we do that. So why did he call it the unconscious? What is unconscious? Well, we've all got an idea of what that is. But a lot of why he called it the unconscious is because of the way it works. Because at the moment, it's apparently beyond our mental control, beyond anything that we understand. And the human brain can be very isolationist at times. So its first answer for many people when presented with new ideas that it doesn't understand is no. Our brains reject ideas that don't fit into our current worldview box. Not all the time, but they do for everybody a little bit, and they do for some people a lot. Most people are not brought up, unfortunately, to enjoy newness and strangeness. It's all like fit into the mould, don't rock the boat, all this sort of stuff. And we're told that we need to be in control. That being out of control is bad and we get told off for it and it's dangerous and all this kind of thing. So we're really scared to be out of control and we're really scared not to understand things. 
and we try to fit in and be normal. So we lose our talents, we've all got them, for actually looking at newness and looking at strangeness. For many, to work with something that is incomprehensible is very scary. Now, the archetypes, these blueprinty things, are mostly dormant, asleep inside of us. And Jung says they're the deposits of all our ancestral experiences, but, and this is important, but they're not the experiences themselves. They're the memories, the deposits, the blueprints, the ideas of all our ancestral experiences, all ancestors, animal, vegetable, mineral, human, whatever. They're not the actual experiences themselves, like I said with the recipes just now. They're blueprints, they're patterns, outlines, prototypes, if you like, models and examples that we, at first, choose unconsciously to act out, to build on, to use. And we usually choose them when we're triggered by a life happening, a challenge or a crisis. That's because it seems to take that much energy in order to get us to be able to reach down far enough into the pool to find something new that we can do, to find the strength to jump out of that window, escape the fire or whatever it is. Another thing with them is because each of us is unique, so is what happens to us. So my reactions in a fire, my what happens to me if I'm caught in a fire, won't be the same as you or anybody else. It might be similar, but it won't be the same. So the way that I use and manifest the collective unconsciousness, unconscious rather, won't be the same as you. The way each of us use it is individual to each of us. Jung agreed, as I said earlier, with Freud's idea that personal experience shapes us. But he did not believe, as Freud did, that we are born as a blank slate and are only the product of our experiences. Jung found that perspective far too limiting, and so do I. And it really doesn't fit with reality. Think of the examples that I've just given. We have all that past, that pool of wisdom at our backs, that pool of archetypal potential. And we need to learn how to access it. As I said, I can help you with that. I've done it. I've been taught it. I've been trained in it, both in the transpersonal and in the old ways of my family, just so similar. I can help you reach down into that pool and be able to bring up things when you want it. So if you'd like to know more, just get in touch with me and we'll see where you go, where you want to go, and if I can be of any help to you. So that's it for today. I'll see you all again next week. So bye for now. Well, Thank you for joining our weekly sail on Pea Green Boat. Time to stop now. If you'd like to know more, you can meet me at www.ellensentier.com and I'm on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So let's connect. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode 
And thank you so much to Wahoo Media, who produced this podcast for me. See you next week. Bye for now.